0: So we spent the last four weeks walking through a majority of the Old Testament with the idea of looking at the Messiah. It's pretty obvious, I would say, that he's there from the beginning, right? Is that fair to say? Um, So I just want to take a little bit of time um, to kind of cue us in to a different train of thought, a theme that we have seen but really haven't focused on through the last, um, whatever, 25 books that we've gone through. Out of sin comes grace. Out of sin comes grace. Just give you a moment to look at it, think about it, what that potentially means, how we've seen that. You know, the more I think about this phrase, the more I see it as a defining theme of the entire Bible. Without sin, the Bible would not exist. Is that a fair statement? Without sin, we would just be hanging out with God, who is the Word, the living Word, the spoken Word. It would just be God. And so the entire Bible and everything in it is there because of sin. You know, that's an interesting thought. I've never really spoken this out loud before, so I'm just kind of thinking it through as I'm speaking it. But you think about what happens in chapter 3 of Genesis, the rebellion against God, that basically starts the entire journey of us seeing who the Messiah is and what He is going to accomplish. And Revelation is the completion of what the Messiah will accomplish. All of that starts with sin. It's interesting, you think about how sovereign and all-knowing God is. Why would He have even created Humanity, if he knew everything that would play out in terms of rebellion, why even go there? Because he understood that it would all happen. So, why even start the show?
1: Because he wanted us to worship him voluntarily. It's true. Not not forces to.
0: But why even bring humanity in?
1: Because character wouldn't be seen beyond themselves without being.
0: yeah, does that make sense? it does. So he just wants us to understand who he is. That's why he brought us in. Relationship.
1: I mean, he wants. A, he wants to shower us with those characteristics.
0: So, but he's a god of relationships. Right? He's a god that wants to have relationships. So that's why he created humanity. And why continue if we knew that we were just going to rebel against him? Maybe so we could know more of who he is. Without sin, we would not understand the depth of who God is and how much He loves us. That one's really important to allow that to sink in. Without sin, we would have no clue the depth of God's love, His mercy, His grace, His pursuit of us. We wouldn't have any idea how deep those go if sin was not in the world. You know, think about... Let's just start looking at specific things in the Bible. When Abraham, or when uh, Adam and Eve sin, what's the first thing that God does? Covers them. Covers them. He makes a promise for his <laughs> Messiah, tells them that all the curses are going to occur, and then he covers them. The immediate reaction of sin is this intense overflowing of mercy and love from God. Think about the ark. Why did God bring an ark into a world that had utterly abandoned him? So they could understand his desire for them to be saved. So they could understand more of what he wants. You know, and it just goes on and on with Abraham and covenant. Why would God go face to face with a man that didn't even know him and give him such a wealth of promises of blessings? So he could better understand his depth of character and how much he fiercely loves his people. How he's all-powerful, but yet so trustworthy. Right? And it just goes on and on through everything we've studied. majority of these things would not have been there if sin and brokenness had not been in the world. So out of humanity's rebellion against his creator, we have experienced the true depth of God's love and been able to see what he is willing to do to redeem us from our own problems. Honestly, I think that's the entire Bible summed up. And so if that's the case, you've got to think about God and how he views your life and all of your flaws and the times where you continually rebel against him. It's almost like he gives us the freedom to do that. Yes, so we can choose what we want, but almost more so so that way we can understand the depth of his love for us and the grace that he wants to pour out upon us that kind of making sense mm-hmm. so it's just it's a whole different way to view God but I think it's crucial I think it's it's right at the center of who he is free will leads to rebellion but rebellion leads to us better understanding who God is it just shows how completely sovereign God truly is you know there's that verse Romans 8:28 that all things work together for those who love him right and for a long time I just thought yeah that's just kind of a nice pleasantry. But when you really start to see the brokenness of this world, you realize, dang, even though it's broken, even though I bring brokenness upon myself, God still knits in so much goodness and transformation through that brokenness. In the moments, in the entire human history, it's just just how he interacts with us. It's incredible. Okay. So. Can you see that all right, Corey? So we are going to um, bust through basically 600 years of Jewish history here in the next hour and 15 minutes. Um, We're going to try to move through a majority, all the kings here in the next half an hour, and then we'll get into the prophets after that. Um, It's such a huge chunk. I, I don't even... I don't know how many books, how many prophets there are. It's, it's got to be like half of the entire Old Testament that we're going to be hitting right now. Um, with this, remember, we're not doing so much of an Old Testament overview, although that will be in there. We're more trying to figure out who is God. That is our goal. Who is God? Awesome. So we'll start with the Kings. And we will be kind of spending some time in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles. So if you want to open your Bible there. So first Kings right off the bat. Kings. So we should have context, but just in case we're not really remembering it, why did the kings come about? We looked at it last week. People
2: asked for
0: yeah, people. Yep. And in asking, what was their true motivation?
2: They were rebelling against
0: God. Yeah, they no longer wanted God as their king. They wanted to be like the other nations. And God still allowed it to happen, and he still poured out his grace and blessings upon these kings. Um, but these kings had a very specific task in front of them. Let's see what's going on here. So let's look at the responsibility of the kings. 1 Kings 2, 1 through 4. When somebody gets there, if you wouldn't mind reading it. Because we looked at Saul, we looked at David, and we're just going to... Jet through the other 30 plus kings.
2: As the time of King David's death approached, he gave this charge to his son Solomon I am going where everyone on earth must someday go. Take courage and be a man. Observe the requirements of the Lord your God and follow all his ways. Keep the decrees, commands, regulations, and laws written in the law of Moses so that you will be successful in all you do and wherever you go. If you do this, then the Lord will keep the promise he made to me. He told me, if your descendants live as they should and follow me faithfully faithfully with all their heart and soul, one of them will always sit on the throne of Israel.
0: Thank you. So what is the requirement of a king, the responsibility of a king? They want to do things well.
3: Be obedient, keep the law.
0: Exactly, the law. So thank Mosaic Covenant. (laughs) <laughs> Deuteronomy 28:29, blessings and curses come when they follow God or when they disobey Him. And so the same thing is true of the King. You know, we had this drawn last week, this idea of a theocracy. God's up top, and the people are down below Him, and He is their King. And what He used to do, what He did do, was bring in. <coughs> various judges to deliver them, but then they rejected the concept of the judges and they wanted a king so there is a king there, but look who is above the king right? so the same concept exists with the theocracy even though the king is in place, God is still ultimately in charge awesome, so after here's a little pop quiz, after uh, King David comes Solomon. Good job. Wish I had a gold star to give you, Wayne. So let's just see how Solomon does it. We're just basically going to focus on Solomon and then Jeroboam, one of the next kings, just to kind of see how things go. A bit of a summary. So 1 Kings 3. Let's look at Solomon's blessings. 1 Kings 3.3 and then 10 through 14. So somebody wants to read that first verse, 1 Kings 3.3.
4: Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statues of his father
3: David, except that he sacrificed and burned incense at the high places.
0: So there's a whole other part with him sacrificing and offering incense that we're not going to look at. But what is Solomon doing so well right off the bat? What's that word? Walking in the statues. Walking in the statues. What does he even say before that? Yeah. Love, the Lord. Love the Lord, right? The heart of the law. Think about what Jesus said. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. That's the first commandment. So we see Solomon on task here. And Evan, if you wouldn't mind reading verses 10 through 14 to see how God responds to Solomon.
5: Sure. Uh, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you, uh, so that none like you has been before, and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, <coughs> both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments, as the father, uh, as your father king, as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days.
0: So incredible blessings, right? All due to the fact that he loved the Lord and then he walked in his statutes. So, straight out of the Mosaic covenant. Flip over to Kings, 1 Kings 11. We'll skip over the building of the temple and all the crazy stuff that Solomon did. If somebody wouldn't mind reading the first two verses 1 Kings 11.
3: King Solomon? They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them, because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held
0: fast to them in love. So you see the contrast between uh first Kings 3:3 3, 3 and 1 Kings 3, or excuse me, 1-1. Solomon loved, Solomon loved. All right? So there's a a switch that takes place in his affection and his obedience. And you remember what Joshua said to the people when they were about to enter the land? Don't intermarry, because they're going to turn your hearts away. And we see him breaking this law right off the bat. And then the consequences roll out. Somebody wouldn't mind reading verses 9 through 13, just so you can see the curses.
1: The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen.
0: All right. So, would these be blessings or curses? curses? Curses. Now, is this the full, like the full spread of the curses that were promised in Deuteronomy 28:29? Not at all. Not at all. Which is says a lot about God. It really does. We have a king that turns away from him and lists all the different um, gods that he worshipped in verses like 4, 5, 6, and 7. right? Some of them are terrible. Like Molech, he was a bull right? that held his hands out, his belly was open, and they would light a fire until he was glowing red, and then they would place the firstborn child on the hands to be burned alive. So if Solomon is worshipping this god, you just can insinuate what must have happened, you know? And so God says, you are going to lose much. However, I'm not going to take it all from you. Which is not in concordance with the Mosaic covenant. Because it said, when you do not obey me, all these curses will fall upon you. So what does that say about God right off the bat? Merciful. merciful. I'm sure that's something Merciful. Notice that. He's merciful. So, just in case... You guys um, aren't super familiar with what happens from here. God gives another man that's not a part of the Davidic line, David's sons, a chance to inherit 10 out of the 12 tribes. Let me see, I think I have a map here. So he gives Jeroboam, that's his name, a chance to rule over 10 of the tribes of Israel where the Davidic, or the Davidic line, David's line, would still have... Um, Judah and Benjamin and Simeon are kind of all absorbed into one. Um, so this is kind of in order to see more about what God's up to. Let's read a little bit more about it. I think I have it on there. Um, so let's read 1 Kings 11 37 and 38.
6: I will appoint you and you will reign as king over all you want and you will be king over Israel. After that if you obey all my command I command you Walk in my ways and do what is right in my sight in order to keep my statutes statues, and my commandments as my servant David did. I will be with you. I will build you a lasting dynasty just as I built for David, and I will give you Israel.
0: It's a heck of an opportunity, isn't it? Mm-hmm. To just some random outsider. Mm-hmm. To have the same kingdom, the same blessings that David inherited. Um, and it all comes down to his obedience. If you choose to to worship me if you choose to trust me and this idea of like God setting people up for success it just it's so evident throughout this entire thing from Abraham all the way through to Jeroboam God gives people the opportunity to live the abundant life that's what his desire is for them let's uh, flip over to chapter 12 verses 25 through 33 it kind of shows Jeroboam's choice so he's given this incredible opportunity just if he has the faith to do it
5: then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there and he went out from there and built uh, Penuel and Jeroboam said in his heart now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord of Jerusalem then the heart uh, heart of this people will turn again to their Lord to Rehoboam king of Judah and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam king of Judah So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold, and he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. But he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before before one. And he also made the temples on high places and appointed priests from among the people, who are not of the Levites, and Jeroboam appointed a feast on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, like a feast that was in the in Judah, and he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel sacrificing to the calves that he made, and he placed in Bethel the high priests of the, uh, the priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar and he had made in Bethel uh, that he had made in Bethel on the fifteenth day in the eighth month. In the month that he had devised uh, from his own heart, and he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings.
0: So, did Jeroboam choose to trust God and to follow in his ways? No, no it's the exact opposite. Think golden calves. When you hear golden calf, Israel, what do you think of?
4: Aaron. What's that? Aaron.
0: Yeah, exactly, right? When they're Mount Sinai and he comes down. So, he just like grabs these and even says the same thing that they said, like, Here are your gods, O Jerusalem who brought you out of the land of Egypt. It's just such foolishness. And he he makes his own priesthood to replace the priesthood that God set up. He has a festival that's one month later than the festivals that God had appointed. So he basically creates a very similar religious structure worshiping false gods. Utter foolishness. And we're not going to look at it, but what ends up happening to Jeroboam and his line? He's wiped out. He's wiped out. He has a son, and then his line is done. That's it. You know, let's just, uh, one of these handouts I gave you shows kind of a breakdown. Uh, It's called The Macro View of Israel and Judah. And we'll kind of break this down, but the average reign is 10 years in the northern kingdom. That's Jeroboam's kingdom. Nine different dynasties, so that's nine different families. Um, it's just all over the place, all due to their choice, due to their choice. What are we seeing about God here? What seems to be a key component of who he is that we're seeing shown here? Well, he
6: has second chances. He does. He, it's kind of strange for him reaching out to Jeroboam. Um, and, and that's kind of an interesting sidebar that mm-hmm. was a big one, taking him away from giving him something that he had promised, uh, you know, David.
0: Mm-hmm.
6: Um, I guess I'm a little confused about it.
0: Yeah. Other thoughts? I'll lead you to what I'm thinking eventually, but I want to hear what you guys are thinking. It's better than what I got, I know.
3: Well, he's true to his word because he says what's going to happen. And he tells these kings at the time of you know that they really start leading the people astray. He tells them what's going to happen, and he follows through. Yep. And I think it also shows his characteristic as being a jealous God, too, because he doesn't stand for adultery. Yep. Yeah, I
5: was going to say ex- uh, exclusive or exclusive. Mm-hmm. Of course, you know, if you want to be in my family, I'll be in my family. If
0: you don't, you know. Now, Amy said inclusive last week. So how do we combine inclusive and exclusive? They do combine, but let's just kind of talk that through just so we all understand where we're at here.
3: Well, I wouldn't say exclusive like barring people, but exclusive like VIP, like an exclusive club. <laughs> you know what <laughs> yeah, I mean? He's the only. <laughs> he is the only one in that
2: club. Yep, yep. Yeah. That's
0: good. I like your analogies.
2: I think his choice of Jeroboam was kind of interesting since he was not of the lineage. Um, and I think what it shows is that God will use anyone.
0: Mm-hmm. To anyone who does what?
2: His will. Who is obedient and who loves him.
0: So I'm seeing kind of a common thread being over here with the jealous exclusive like you have to do what I want you to do if you want to be a part of it and he'll use anyone who loves him. God's a conditional God. This doesn't come out very often in grace-filled New Testament taught churches but God is a very conditional God. does. He does have unconditional love, and it's really important to remind us of that. In terms of majority of his characteristics, they are there is no condition attached. However, looking at things that have been laid out in order for the Abrahamic covenant to save somebody, what is the condition for them to be a part of that? only Christ. Faith. 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 In order to be a part of the New Covenant, right, with the death of Christ, it abolishes, fulfills, doesn't abolish the law. To be a part of the New Covenant, what is the condition? Faith. Faith. Across the board, we see this in the Old Testament and the New Testament, if you want what God is wanting to give us, His patience, His mercy, His fierce love, right, you have to be willing to live up to his standard. What is his standard for the Abrahamic and the new covenant? Faith. Faith, Period. It's different than the Mosaic covenant. But the same nature is true of God and all the way across. It's it's conditional. It depends upon our response to him. Is that making sense? Mm -hmm. We see this with Jesus as well. Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's incredible. Anyone who what calls. You have to call upon it. You have to be, you have to live the way he wants you to live. You have to have the mindsets. You have to just embrace the gospel if you want to receive the blessings from the gospel. It has nothing to do with lifestyle as much as it does to do with your view on God and your desire to love Him, obey Him, your desire to see Him as a truly rede- redemptive, redeeming God. What do you guys think of that?
1: But it's not necessarily living the way you want you to live and just accepting the gifts He wants to give you. Does that make sense? That's sort of a little different I It does. One's accepting His grace versus living out His expectations of
0: I see you're talking for like eternal salvation
4: yeah,
1: yeah I think you're in everyday
0: life so if, if we want the abundant life that Christ came to offer we can live any way we want his blessings flow out based on our behavior eternal salvation by grace and faith Period. <clears throat> however how we want the blessings to be poured out here and now Often, not always, but often, have to do with the conditional, the, our condition, his conditionality to our response, conditionalness to our response.
5: Mm-hmm. Which is
1: the law being fulfilled versus the law being abolished.
0: Yep, yeah, absolutely. In
2: Him, because we, without Him, are not able to.
0: It's true. Like fulfilled, the law is fulfilled at the death of Christ because he is the, both the high priest and the scapegoat. right? And it took it all on so we don't have any of the consequences, the curses that are brought on. So that's eternal salvation. However, if you want like the true goodness of God to be evident in your life day in, day out, it has to do more with our behavior than it does our simple faith. It's just what I've been seeing as I've been studying specifically the kings over the last few years. It's just God is a conditional God. He will redeem an individual in a heartbeat. There's so much of this that is still there, obviously. However, if we want the blessings, then we must be willing to obey. There's examples, and I'll look at it here shortly, of him giving blessings to disobedient people. Because he's just crazy about his mercy and his grace that he pours out. However, the consistent theme throughout, if you disobey God, if you choose to reject him, and the rejection is not, oh, I didn't quite do what I was supposed to do on a Sabbath, or I didn't quite give enough to the poor. It's more like I chose to reject God and worship other idols. When they choose to do that, then they get the curses. When they choose him over the other nations and their gods, then they get the blessings. Well, it's
3: kind of also, I mean, I think... monitor closely that viewpoint, because then you can become very frustrated and confused and um, distraught when you feel or you think that you're being dealt curses in your life when you're earnestly trying to follow the Lord, you know? Um, Because even when we try and follow the Lord wholeheartedly, it doesn't mean we're dealt only blessings. Yeah, you know that's true, what I mean? without a doubt. Completely sheltered just because of the environment that we live in.
0: That's good. That's a really good point. The fact that the the world is broken, and will inevitably invade our lives. Mm-hmm. That's true across the board. Yeah,
3: God can redeem anything bad yep. that comes in. Yep. But
4: yeah.
0: yeah. By no means should this ever fall into that prosperity gospel mindset. Yeah. As long as I obey God, I will never get sick. I'll never get cancer. I'll always be wealthy. That's just hogwash. That's not what we see at all yeah. in the Bible what we consider to be a curse just be a trial? Potentially. And that goes in this... Potentially. And you could see the, the curses as forms of trials. So whether they come from God or whether they come from a broken world, often we have no idea. However, as we go through that curse or that trial, it is a chance for us to choose who we trust once again. that kind of makes sense, Wayne? So like me falling 40 feet and cracking my head open and you losing your leg, was that from God? I don't believe so For my situation. Did God allow my belayer to drop me? I don't think so. I think it's just a broken world. However, through that trial, not a curse, I learned a lot. However, did God allow that to happen? Yes. So could it be considered a curse? I don't know. But none of that matters because either way, when you turn back to him in the midst of whatever you're going through, that's where the blessings flow in. Does that mean a healed leg and a healed brain? Maybe not. But does it mean sanctification and the growing of our spirit and who we are? Absolutely. So let's just keep moving through um, Amy, I really appreciate you bringing that up. As we continue through this, specifically when we get in the prophets, we're going to see that God does not allow his people to just walk down roads into curse after curse after curse. Rather, he is continually given them one chance after another after another to turn away from what they're experiencing. Um, so he's very much involved in all of that as well. Um, so looking at, if you'd like, the macro view of Israel and Judah, um, you see that they existed for... The Northern Kingdom existed for 210 years. All kings were considered evil because they continued to worship the golden calf. Not a single one is documented it really as good for the entirety of their, their reign. Some are just downright terrible. We see the fates of the kings seven assassinated, one commits suicide after a month of reigning, one stricken by God, and one taken to Assyria. Um, it's just a terrible deal. How long did it last, though? So, tell me again. What does that tell you about God? 210 years. Two centuries of people rejecting Him outright that are His people. It's crazy, isn't it? The amount of patience that He has. And we'll look at the amount of prophets that He sent in to continually try to redeem them. It's amazing how fiercely He loves His people as they reject Him over and over and over. It's almost like His love is unstoppable. His mercy is unstoppable. Let's just quickly see how it ends for them, just so we can see the true um, ramifications of the rebellion. So the covenantal consequences. Second Kings seventeen. Somebody wouldn't mind reading verses five through nine. So this is the Northern Kingdom, the ten tribes.
3: the king of Assyria, the king of Assyria capsered, captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria. He settled them in Halah in Gozan on the Habor River and in the towns of the Medes. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God who brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh the king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices <coughs> of the nations the Lord had driven out before them as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From watchtowers to fortified cities, they built themselves high places in all their towns.
0: And the list goes on and on of the ways that they rebelled against God, worshipped other gods. Um
3: I think it's funny in verse 9 that it says they secretly did things against the Lord. Yeah. Like he didn't know. Yeah. yeah, let's come to
0: this high place beneath <laughs> yeah. these trees. Yeah. Guys,
3: it's obvious it's written down here. Yeah. <laughs> here, right? Absolutely. Someone's
0: recording it. Yeah. It just shows you where their heart was towards God, what they thought of him. Yeah. They obviously didn't think he was omnipotent or omniscient at all. Um, so when Assyria and this is all so well documented this is a cool time of biblical history because now we're starting to get non-biblical documents across the board that have been recovered from various libraries of like Assyria and Babylon and Persia and so we see it all coming just really laid out on the table that this is historical proof that this really happened. Um, But when Assyria came in, what they would do is they would grab all of the inhabitants of the town or the nation that they captured and then they would scatter them through the rest of their empire. Straight up assimilation. So the northern kingdom wasn't taken, like we'll see with the southern kingdom, and just put in a place where they could live. Rather, they were assimilated into all these other nations, so their heritage disappeared. No doubt, they started that. They were considered the first nation that was uh, like a professional army, and they would like chop off heads and skewer people from the rectum and skin people alive, and it's just like
6: yeah, it's horrendous.
0: Yeah, what they went through. And if you read through um, the kings, you'll see God giving them opportunities. The kings' opportunities, like yes, this enemy is approaching. You hear the screams of your neighbors. However, if you turn to me, I will do things to prevent this. Um, but they, they chose, like it says, to secretly worship other gods. All right, any thoughts, questions about who God is in the midst of the northern kingdom? All right. It's
5: just always about who, which God are you going to follow.
0: Yeah, who are you going to trust? Yep. Just that. All right, so the southern kingdom. So back to that handout. This is the Davidic line, right? The entire time, I don't even know, I think there's 20 kings in total. Um, The entire time, it's always one of David's uh, descendants that filled the throne, except for one time where a crazy queen from the northern kingdom comes in. Um, But other than that, God's covenant that he had with David was fulfilled, the one that we looked at last week in 2 Samuel 7. Um, eight of which were considered to be good because they followed David's examples and obeyed God. Um, and there's a lot of cool things that are poured out upon those kings as they do that. Um, it's just really neat to read through the history, looking at who they trusted. Um, when you get to Hezekiah, really a popular king, you see a lot of cool things go on. Um, but I want to look at one specifically. Do you wouldn't mind going to Second Kings 18 or 19? 2 Kings 19, 32 through 36. So Assyria, this is only 21 years after Assyria takes the northern kingdom. They're obviously just continue to march down into the southern kingdom. Um, And they take 40, I think 46 out of 47 of the southern kingdom's big cities. The only one that's left is Jerusalem. So the southern kingdom is on the edge of being totally wiped out and scattered, just like the northern kingdom. So that kind of tells you how they've been pursuing God, the choices that they've been making, because he continues to allow them to be knocked down. You know, Hezekiah is seen as a really good king, but there's stuff in Kings and Chronicles and Isaiah that show him trusting other nations, trying to contact Egypt and other ones to come in to save him from Assyria instead of relying on God. However, when it all falls apart, Hezekiah turns to the Lord. Uh, when he has nowhere else left to turn, his, his city is surrounded, his nation is destroyed. There's, there's like 200,000 men that want to rip off their heads standing outside the walls of Jerusalem. And you see in 2 Kings 19, 15, Hezekiah praying. O Lord, the God of Israel, you are enthroned above the cherubim. You are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made the heaven and the earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and hear. Hear the word of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands and have hurled their gods into the fire, though they were no gods but the work of human hands, wood and stone, and so they were destroyed." So now, O Lord, our God, save us. I pray you from his hand, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Now, it's easy to be like, yeah, he's just praying to God, but this is the one time during this entire invasion that he turns to God and asks him for help. Now, if somebody wouldn't mind reading verses 32 through 36, 35, just to see how God responds.
5: Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mount against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return and he shall come into this this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And uh, and that night the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies.
0: Dang. So what does that make you think of? The angel of the Lord going and killing people in mass. The Exodus, right? It's Passover, once again. Why did God do this? They cried out to him. He said, You are my king, I trust you and you alone save us. Think theocracy. A king finally turns, and God reacts. What's so cool, and this doesn't really matter, but this is so cool. So they found what... Well, there's a, there's a, a prism that they found. Um, It's in the British Museum right now. They call it Sennacherib's prism. They dug it out of one of his libraries. It's just this like octagonal shaped prism like yay big and it has a bunch of writings in it back in like 700, the 8th century BC. uh, It's called the prism of Sennacherib and in it they found his attack and invasion upon Judah. And they have like huge um, abs- or huge carvings, like fills up the walls of him hauling out people from Lachish, which is a name of a, a southern kingdom city with hooks in their noses. And so we see it all done. And when it comes down to Hezekiah, he wrote that he speaks of the invasion of Judah exactly as Scripture does, except at the end he says he has King Hezekiah caged up, this is quoted, caged up like a bird in the city of Jerusalem and then it stops. He gives no conclusion to what must have occurred. Why would a king stop when he was about to wipe out an entire country?
2: Because he was wiped
0: out. And why would a king ever tell that he was wiped out by a mysterious God? So we see this in extra-biblical documentation He talks about how he took 200,000 Jewish people captive, took away two-thirds of their population, he had diminished the land, and then he had Hezekiah caged up like a bird in the city of Jerusalem, and then he stops. Incredible. Incredible. So, what's this tell us about God? This is such an incredible event. What's this tell us about the God we worship?
2: He's waiting for us to cry out.
0: His response is so instantaneous and so complete. I think about what he gave to Abraham, what we now have because of Christ, it's just like such a complete reaction to us simply crying out. It's incredible.
3: I think Hezekiah's prayer is very, um, it's a good template to follow. Um, because God is jealous, and and I think when we are eager to see his reputation defended, he's, he's eager to step up and do that. And so when Hezekiah is crying out and saying, like, look at this guy, he's been sent to rid- ridicule you, and you know, laid waste, like, I know you can do it. We know that you can step in and do this. I think that's a really powerful way to pray. Yep. you know
6: Absolutely.
3: And, and it's very confident on Hezekiah's part to say, you know, he's saying that you can't. I know you can. Yeah
0: It's interesting how much confidence comes from us hitting rock bottom.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Right? It's finally when we let go of confidence in ourselves or whatever else that we built up and said, God, I trust that you can do this most likely because I can't trust anything else. I've seen it all stripped away.
3: In in verse 19, when Hezekiah appeals to God in the right way, which is not deliver us to save us, but he says deliver us from His hands so that all the kingdoms of earth may know that you alone are God. Mm-hmm. You know? Absolutely. Yeah, it shows that His heart is in the right place. Absolutely. There. God is very responsive to that. I guess that's
4: yeah. already up there, but... Yeah,
0: he's very responsive to us. Yep. That's great, Amy. Let's look at another one. So, Hezekiah's son was Manasseh. Anybody know anything about Manasseh? He was pretty bad. Worst king of the southern kingdom, period. You know, it says in chapter 21, verse 6, he made his son pass through fire, so he burnt his firstborn son. <clears throat> Right, and it just goes on and on, all the negative things he did. There's even a certain point um, that God says, you know what, finally you've done enough. I'm done with the southern kingdom. However, what I want us to look at is God's response to him. So it's in 2 yeah, Chronicles 33. So Kings and Chronicles, a little side note, cover the exact same history. Chronicles only looks at the southern kingdom, David's kingdom. And it's written by most likely Ezra after the exile. So they have different intentions of why it was written. So that's why they exist side by side. They are the same history, but they're written with a different view in mind. So you can get different things out of them. Um, so think about how bad Manasseh was and if somebody wouldn't mind reading thirty-three, ten through 13
5: the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people but they paid no attention therefore the Lord brought upon the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before uh, the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God.
0: Come on. You want to see grace and mercy in the Old Testament? It does not get any richer than these four verses. It's incredible. So, what does this say about our God? Can an individual sin too much to no longer be able to receive God's mercy and grace? Does it have to be at a certain time in their life? Does it matter when they cry out? Can it be on somebody's deathbed even though they've killed people in their past? According to this, it does not matter. Because how do you get the Abrahamic Covenant, the New Covenant? What does it require? What's the condition? Faith, period. Faith, period. Does this mean that Manasseh had a good life? No. He had so many of the curses poured upon his choices, but he was still open. He still had the ability to receive the Abrahamic Covenant, the New Covenant, due to his faith in God, even at the end of his life. Incredible. <coughs> You know, the southern kingdom went for 345 years, so a decent amount longer. But eventually, um, they had rejected God enough that he allowed the curses to come upon them. Uh, at the end of both Second Chronicles and uh, Second Kings, you see that Babylon comes in. Instead of being taken captive the way that the Assyrians did, Babylon simply transported all of the individuals to Babylon and allowed them to live their life. Um, so a totally different situation, really for the benefit of the southern kingdom. Um, we see that after 70 years they were returned, allowed to return to Jerusalem again I wish this was more of a biblical overview um, but we don't have time to look at all of that um, but I, what I do want to look at is why they were returned so if you wouldn't mind flipping to the last page of 2 Chronicles Second Chronicles 36 oh there's Sennacher's prison That's beautiful so it's in the uh, the British Museum of History. That was their hometown, Nineveh. Think about Jonah. Mm-hmm. Crazy. Let's see. There we go. All right. So the return. Second Chronicles 36, 22, and twenty three. Why did God, or why were why were the Jewish people in Babylon allowed to come back to a town? That God had removed them from.
6: In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah was fulfilled. The Lord put it into the mind of King Cyrus of Persia to issue a proclamation throughout his time of kingdom and also to put it in writing. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says The Lord, the God of heaven, Has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem and Judah. Whoever among you of his people may go up and may be there. May the Lord his God be with him.
0: So, why did the people, the Jewish people, why were they allowed to return after only 70 years of being exiled?
2: Because God put it on King Cyrus.
0: Exactly. Babylon's wiped out by Persia. The king of Persia feels led by God to release the people. What does that tell you about God? The Mosaic Covenant and the curses is just utter desolation is how they're going to end. If you reject me, you're done. And we see after only 70 years, they're allowed to be restored to the land that he had originally given them.
3: I think it also shows how trustworthy God is, back to he's good to his word, because he did tell them that it was going to be 70 years, yep. and Daniel kind of recognized that at the yep. time, and they were kind of preparing themselves, in some ways, some yep. people were preparing themselves to exit, and I think other people were maybe blindsided, because like, oh, we had no idea, no, absolutely. <laughs> that it was, Like, but the 70 years was up, and like, yep. you can count on God to keep his word.
0: Absolutely. That's good. A couple different ways. So the fact that he brought in the 70 years, what does that say about him? That wasn't in the Mosaic Covenant. What does that say about him? Over and over. see, he's merciful, right? Over and over and over, God is merciful. And the second side of it, the people that saw it coming, that wanted to leave, left. But only 2% of Southern Kingdom returned. 2% of the people that had left actually returned. So the idea that Evan was talking about a couple weeks ago, the remnant, the people that really want to follow God is such a small portion of all of humanity because it requires obedience into the unknown.
3: But it's so cool, I think, that people were still left there because if you think about how that expanded God's kingdom, yep because there were Israelites who still knew. They knew the prophets and knew who God was, but it assimilated to the culture. Yep. And they stayed there. And then at the time of the Messiah, there's thought that the kings or the wise men from the East who came yep. were part of this people that never returned, Absolutely. but then they did for the Messiah. Yeah. It's just, it's so cool how God, I mean, his overall story is expanding his kingdom to everybody. Yep and through that's the, happening so early through the
0: ones that are willing to love him regardless yes. of where they go because yes. you're right if they stayed in Babylon or if they were assimilated through Assyria but they loved him they're like missionaries right you yes. could say spreading the word apostles that's a great way to look at it and God desires to expand it to all nations so sweet um, okay so just for the sake of time of course I say this every time we got to kind of keep moving and get into the prophets um, so Wayne you had asked this before Pharisees started after the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. When they rebuilt the city, rebuilt the temple, the Pharisees saw, man, when we break the law, bad things happen. It's obvious by looking at our history. Therefore, we need to be very serious about the law. And so the Pharisees started like 400 B.C. Maybe good intentions, but got completely out of control. All right, so let's look at the prophets. How many of you feel comfortable with the prophets and what they are saying and you love to read them and you read them all the time, right? Hardly even us ever But unfortunately, we're missing out on a huge chunk of who God is because it's revealed far more through the prophets, in my opinion, than the else. So there's a painting of Jeremiah. So let's just talk about the prophets in general. Uh, it simply means when you translate the Hebrew, it means man, man or woman of God. Period. Man or woman of God. It doesn't have anything to do with, I'm going to tell you the future. I'm going to tell you about how Christ is going to come back in the end in 2024, right? A prophet is simply a man or a woman of God. Now, their role is to be a conduit for God to directly speak to his people. To be a conduit for God to directly speak to his people. Now, Moses was considered a prophet. And think about everything that God did through him. Right? You've seen the people from bondage showing... The people, his character, his desire for relationship. Deborah was a prophetess back in the Judges. Samuel is considered a prophet during the time of the kings. There's like 38 different prophets that I know, and this is key to just kind of give you context because the prophets are confusing because people don't understand where to place them in the overall story. So if you look at this guy, his timeline. <clears throat> I know you need a magnifying glass or maybe a microscope for some of you. But this, is the, this is the kingdom of both the northern and the southern kingdom. You can see the United Kingdom on the left, Saul, David, Solomon. That's when it splits. The, top, the green is the northern kingdom. Bottom, the yellow, Mary, is Judah. And then you can see their captivity um, in that little box off to the right. And then the return with Ezra and Nehemiah is in the purple. Everything in between, see those little, those little places? Those are the prophets. So these were men. I don't know if there's any women during this time frame. These were men that God had brought into this specific history in order to share his thoughts and his commands and his desires for these specific people. So whenever you look at a book of the prophets figure out where it falls in the lines of the kings. Go look at 1st or 2nd Kings to see what's going on. That makes sense? So, they're not just stand alone, although we do get to see some stuff of God, but if you really want to understand what a prophet is saying, you have to understand the context in which they are speaking. It's crucial. Alright, so let's just kind of run through in general what a prophet is all about. So qualifications of a prophet. We're going to be flipping through a bunch of different prophets. I tried to spread it out as much as I could just to show you that they are all good. Let's um, start with uh, Amos. Feel free to keep your thumb in your... Um, what's the list of all the books at the beginning of the yeah, feel free to keep your thumb in the table of contents, because I haven't a clue where they're at either. I just kind of flip around until I see it. I can tell you a page number, but I don't think that'll help you. So Amos 7, well, mine's 1,100 so, <laughs> 7, 14, and 15. So we're looking at the qualifications of a prophet, of a man or a woman of God.
5: Son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, "Go prophesy to my people Israel."
0: Boom. What What's it take for Amos to be a prophet? God told me. This. Called by God, and he listened. Yeah. Period. All right, let's go to Jeremiah. You probably heard this one, Jeremiah one. I bet you can find Jeremiah two, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Jeremiah 1, 4 through 8.
3: The word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Alas, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I'm too young. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I'm too young. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you,
4: and I will rescue
0: you, declares so, the Lord. So what's the qualifications that we see in Jeremiah? Go do, do it. Do you have to be like, eloquent? Do you have to be knowledgeable? No. He just said, you are a prophet. Listen to me. Go. Um, you know, if you continue to read, we, won't, we don't really have time to go in it. but he, in 14 through 19, he tells them, you're going to say that they're going down. As long as you listen to me, I will protect you. If you don't listen to me, I will destroy you. It's like a heck of a profession, isn't it? It's no wonder he's called like the lamenting prophet. Like he just continually is speaking into people's wickedness his whole life. Alright. Purposes and prophecy. so this is just a mass generalization of what the prophets are all about. The main thing that one of the main things that seems to happen is that the prophet points out sin and consequence. So thank Mosaic covenant. You are breaking the covenant. Here are the curses. So Jeremiah 7, 1 through 15 kind of gives us a nice overview. I'll read it just in case. We can stop a little earlier. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah, you that enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings and let me dwell with you in this place. So you can see God's heart just reaching out. This is what I want. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. So they're believing we have the temple of the Lord. Therefore, it's our get out of jail free card. It doesn't matter. We can do whatever we want. We have the temple. For if you truly amend your ways and your doings, if you truly act justly with one another, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own hurt, then I will dwell with you in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your ancestors forever and ever. Here you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say we are safe only to go on doing all these abominations has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your sight that's what jesus used when he was cast you know, the people from the temple, a den of robbers. You know I too am watching, says the Lord. Go now to my place. I was in Shiloh where I made my name first dwell and see what I did to it for the wickedness of my people. And now because you have done all these things, says the Lord, when I spoke to you persistently, awesome word, you did not listen. And when I called to you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to this house... That is called by my name, in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and your ancestors, ancestors, just what I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight. Crazy. Now, what do we see about God, his character, in how he just addressed his people? There's so much here.
2: Well, in this translation, um, speaking to what you said about obedience, or he's—what um, did you say? He's a conditional God. Yeah. Uh, it says here, "I will be merciful only if you stop your evil, evil thoughts and mm-hmm. deeds." Yep. So right there, that's a conditional statement. Persisted. Mm-hmm.
4: Do we have
3: protective up there? <coughs> Six says if you do not follow god other gods to your own harm, like he's still looking out for our best interest. Absolutely. He says that it's going to
4: bring you
0: harm. It's a great way to put it. So this idea of conditional that we see here, it's almost like a really good parent isn't it? Mm -hmm. Like allowing their child to do what they're choosing to do, even though you warn them time and time and time and time again. But it's not like you're going to chain them up in your basement so they don't do it. So you allow them out of love to go and experience it, even though you're warning them against it. In order for the kid to truly learn from it, what do they have to do? They have to suffer the consequences. So this conditional nature of God can still be seen as loving. I think it's righteous discipline. Righteous discipline that is so surrounded and covered with warning after warning after warning, with grace after grace.
5: This isn't like an absolute statement because I can't think of every passage in which this is correct, but it seems to me that whenever you have <clears throat> this kind of context in which God says, I will have merciful I'll have mercy on you if you turn from your ways there's always present the warning against going after other gods. Mm-hmm. And so your to me I think the the major thing is if you're going over to other gods your conduct will be the same or will will be consistent with going after other gods. And so again we kind of come back to this faith today yeah. But that's just my thought. You know, okay. thinking of all the verses I can considering this. So
2: that's I'm
1: Yeah perceived. Yeah.
2: Maybe a, a better term would be jealous discipline because yeah. he is jealous for us. Yeah. Because in that righteous discipline there is the covering of mercy. Yep.
4: Yeah. yep yeah. Um I think verse five shows that he really does. Yeah.
3: Um, because he says if you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly not just if you change your ways like on the surface mm-hmm. so we can be nice Absolutely. to each other but yeah. I mean he requires a, a shift in heart condition
0: yeah well, that's good so kind of what Evan was saying too along with you I this idea that a theocracy means we look to God for everything right our provider our protector mm-hmm. but also um, this one that we want to worship because of all these characteristics. But what we end up doing, to change our heart condition, we start worshiping idols, right? And they had their physical idols, but we have ours, right? Popularity, right? It just goes on and on and on. These things that we want to worship, that we want to elevate to the throne of our lives. Right? And so with that, like Evan was saying, we start to act in accordance to whatever our idol is, whatever our God is. And so he's saying, man, I don't want you just to do the good things, but I want you to worship me. I want your heart to be focused towards me, because when your heart's focused towards me, all these good, the things that I desire will come. That kind of makes sense? So he's far more focused on the God that you are worshiping than the actions.
4: There's a
3: good tie-in here between what you're saying right now and what, um, who preached yesterday? Bill? Yeah. Yeah. What he was saying that God can detect whether you're just putting out the leaves yeah, or whether fruit. you genuinely have the fruit there. Yeah, absolutely. Jesus wasn't fooled by the fig tree, and God yeah. isn't fooled by us either. Yeah,
0: no, that's good. True. Awesome. So, points out the sin and the consequences. The sin of who? All the prophets point out the sin of who? Israel, You've got to keep that in mind. Right? Sometimes people grab prophets and they start talking about our sins and things like that. Yes, humanity has similar sins, but look at the context in which they're writing, and you'll know who they are writing to. And then physical redemption. Let's look at that. That's a big one. Joel. Somewhere to the right. So it goes, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel. So in the midst of all of the sin and destruction that is being told to these people, he also gives them hope of things to turn. So Joel two eleven through thirteen. The Lord thunders at the head of his army,
1: his forces are beyond number, and mighty are those who obey his command. The day of the
0: Lord is great, it is dreadful, who can endure? So that's a curse that's coming. Go ahead. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rin your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. How sweet is that? So he tells them, destruction is coming. However, if you would just truly turn to me, I will be gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from punishment. So that just gives us a ton of characteristics right there. And again, that's physical redemption for Israel themselves. You know, let's look at Jeremiah 10, Jeremiah 29 real quick. Everybody has heard Jeremiah 29, 11, right? Maybe even to know people with it tattooed on their bodies. It's a lot of people's life verses. But you've got to remember the context. This is Israel, southern Judah, or southern Israel, Judah, that's about to be cast into the wind and taken to Babylon, and God's speaking into that situation. Jeremiah 29:10 through 14.
5: For so this says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me <coughs> heart. Uh, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you
0: back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Oh, sweet. So this is a letter that Jeremiah wrote to the exiles in Babylon. Yes, I cast you out because you had disobeyed me to this extent. However, turn to me and I will restore you. Turn to me and I will give you all these good things. So think about God in our lives now. No matter how far we pushed him away, it's just like this desire, this desire, epic desire to bring us back. He's like, just please stop disobeying me so that way I can give you blessings instead of curses. Even if we're in the Abrahamic covenant, if we choose to pull away from what God is directing us to do, we experience the consequences that are negative. And God, I feel like, is just always saying, stop doing what you're doing, turn to me so that way I can pour this goodness upon you. All right, and then there's also spiritual redemption that's throughout you know not a lot of it is in there but uh, there's a good chunk so let's look at Micah 1 or excuse me 4, 1, 4 so he prophesies their physical redemption but then he also shows them that there's much more in play Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah
6: above the hills people will stream to it and many nations will come and say come let us go up to the mountain of the lord into the house of the god of jacob he will teach us about his way so we may walk in his path for instruction will go out to zion and the word of the lord from jerusalem let me stop
0: you right there who do you think he's talking about yes, i would say jesus more sir, right People will stream there, many nations will come, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his path. So instruction is going to be coming out of Jerusalem. But then it continues. If you wouldn't mind reading 3 and 4, it goes even deeper.
6: He will settle disputes among many people, peoples and provide arbitration for strong nations that are far away. They will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up the sword against nation, and they will never again train for war. But each man will sit upon under his grapevine and under his fig tree, and with no one to frighten him, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has promised this.
0: So for a nation to beat their plow, or their swords into plowshares, spears into pruning hooks, has that ever happened? Did that happen in like Jesus' day? No. So, what are we seeing a prophecy of? Peace. The, second coming, the future, the second coming, everything that comes out of that, right? They shall sit under their own vine; provisions shall be there, their fig tree. No one will make them afraid. It's like a perfect world. Do so you see how it can kind of transition? That's why prophets can be a little bit tricky, but they're so full of goodness to just stop and meditate upon, because we know that Jesus came. Verses 1 and 2, we saw that happen, so therefore, the peace that he's talking about in 3 and 4 must come at some point. It's a promise that we can hold on to. Alright, so any questions about the purpose in the prophets? That's basically what it is, if you read through the prophets and you want to kind of lay yourself kind of a road map through the prophet along the side of it Whenever wherever there's sin mentioned I put a red mark, like a line whenever there's consequences coming I put another red with like X's in it and then whenever there's redemption I put green. So that way when you're flipping through next time you know where the redemption's at, you know where the sin's at and it just helps make it, it helps make it more sense. So the people that, you know, I spent time studying the Bible with, um, been doing a really long time, they, through them and a lot of other people, have said that only 2% of all of the prophets talk about end times. 2%. So often we hear through YouTube and mass media, 700 Club, that the prophet said this, the prophet said that. Man, it's just such a small amount obviously fall into the end times. So much other stuff has already been fulfilled physically or through Jesus. Just stop. All right, we, uh, we don't have time to get through all these, but let's just look at a couple. Feel free to write them down. They just show us major parts of who God is. Um, so, everybody's heard the story Jonah, but so often, at least when you're reading a kid's story, or Jonah to a kid, when does the story stop? When he gets spit out of the whale, right? It's a done deal. But it's just you miss out on so much of it. Jonah is not the main character at all. So if somebody wouldn't mind if you can find it. I can't. There it is, so it's right before Micah. Between Amos and Micah. So Jonah three ten through four two.
5: God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord, and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster.
0: Hmm. So you know the people that he was supposed to prophesy God's destruction upon? The Assyrians. So he was so loyal to his own people that he said, I'm not going to proclaim this to the Assyrians because they're going to turn and God's going to allow the repentance to take place. So Jonah knew God's heart to that extent. And we see the Assyrians were given utter mercy by simply saying, God, we repent. It's incredible.
5: That's always caught me too. I think sometimes we equate the law to being our process of salvation in the Old Testament. But clearly here in Nineveh, they, they didn't have the law. Yep. And they were, it was just their faith and their fidelity. It was... Yeah. Abrahamic. That's perfect.
0: It's awesome to pinpoint. Mm-hmm. Without a doubt.
5: They're not doing the sacrificial system or anything?
0: No, nothing. They simply say, God, we were wrong. Yeah, beautiful. So just to kind of see another prophet, put this in a different way. If you want, I'll just read it real quick. But Isaiah 55, this is one that you've got to take time to meditate on. 55, 6 through 9, Isaiah says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their way and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them return to the Lord that he may have mercy on them and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon Now this is a verse you've heard before. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, or nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as high, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So we've heard that one, right? My thoughts are not your thoughts. But what is the context of that verse? What is he speaking of before that famous verse? His desire to what? To what? Redeem, to pardon, to forgive. So he's like, the way that God forgives makes no sense to us because he will do it so incredibly and overflowing to people that we think do not deserve it. Think about Assyria and Jonah's view towards him. This like sums it up in three verses. Think about Manasseh and everything terrible he did. And at the end of his life, he cries out to God and God redeems him because his thoughts are not our thoughts, his ways are not our ways. Because he is so compassionate in his mercy and his love. Incredible. So since we're in Isaiah, just flip uh, back to 48, 47, 45, there it is. Isaiah 45. This is one that I probably the last one we have time to do. But I just really want to walk you through it because it needs a li- sometimes a little bit of explaining so you can understand the significance of it. So do you guys remember the name Cyrus? It was read half an hour ago. Who was Cyrus?
4: Persian.
0: Persian. Persian. Yep, so the one that released all of the Jews in Babylon to go back. Now this was written in 700 or so B.C. Cyrus released them in 539 B.C. So this is almost 200 years prior in a culture that did not even know anything about Persia. Persia really wasn't around at that time. So the name Cyrus was not an Israelite name. Most likely it probably had never really been heard before. Let's just read what God says through Isaiah 200 years prior. Go ahead and read through verse 7, 1 through 7.
2: what the lord says to cyrus
0: his anointed one hang on one sec you guys remember what messiah means anointed one. the word anointed is translated as messiah it's not jesus but it's just really interesting to correlate what we're doing sorry go ahead so um
2: this is what the lord says to cyrus his anointed one whose right hand he will empower before him mighty kings will be paralyzed with fear their fortress gates will be opened, never to shut again. This is what the Lord says. I will go before you, Cyrus, and level the mountains. I will, I will smash down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. How far should I read?
0: Three seven.
2: And I will give you treasure hidden in the darkness, secret riches. I will do this so you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, the one who calls you by name. And why have I called you for this word? <coughs> Why did I call you by name when you did not know me? It is for the sake of Jacob, my servant, Israel, my chosen one. I am the Lord, there is no other God. I have equipped you for battle, though you don't even know me. So all the world from east to west will know there is no other God. I am the Lord and there is no other. I create the light and make the darkness. I send good times and bad times. I, the Lord, am the one who does these things.
0: Alright, so take a moment to let this kind of sink in. So, a couple different things go on here. One, Isaiah predicts what Cyrus is going to do specifically, like 200 years prior to even happening. So what do we see about God speaking through his people? He's sovereign, he's all-knowing, he stands outside of time. You know, this is to the point where theologians in like, The Ivy League schools like Stanford and and things like that have gotten to the point where they think Isaiah was written by three different authors. Because it's just impossible that a man could have known this 200 years prior. So it must have been added later on because it makes no sense logically. Or it's the God that rules all time that taught him how to do that, right? Those are kind of the two debates. So one is just how amazing this prediction is. Two, this is a man that I don't know where Cyrus' heart ended up. Maybe he ended up knowing God, maybe not. But what did God do through a pagan king?
3: He brought deliverance.
0: He used him for his will to deliver his people. Mm-hmm. So what does that tell you about our God? He didn't use anything. Yeah, is he confined to only using people that like, love him and follow him and know him? No, He's not. There's no other way to look at it. However he wants his will to be accomplished, he can accomplish it through whomever he desires. Incredible. Incredible. Isaiah was telling the Israelites who were rejecting God 200 years before their exile that this was going to happen. What's that tell you about God?
1: prophecy
0: is accurate. It's, accurate it's full of hope right? you ever even though when you're going through hard things or people around you are dying or whatever is happening you ever get these notions <laughs> of like the hope that God will allow things to be alright even though you're in the midst of such hardship it's like God desires to, for us to hang on to the hope of who he is and what he can do even in the midst of it all yeah, it's incredible So these other ones are really good. They just kind of show more characteristics of who God is. Uh, this idea that he is all-inclusive, doesn't matter who, um, what he desires from us. Um, the heart versus the action. Just um, really good things. And then there's that whole idea of the messianic prophecy, right? The prophecies that show the Messiah is going to come. That's what this whole class is supposed to be about, but we're going to spend zero time on it. You know, the handout that I gave you kind of gives you a breakdown of a lot of that. Psalms are full of the messianic prophecies. Some are so specific. Isaiah fifty-two and fifty-three, the suffering servant. You guys have heard that read before. It's incredible. It's the gospel summarized in like fourteen verses. It's amazing. And then you got Daniel seven, where it's the Son of Man who's seated up high with the Ancient of Days. And so you combine the suffering servant who takes on all of our sins to give us redemption and the one who rules all nations, they're all Jesus, both the humble and the powerful. You know, is the Messiah that came. Um, so that number is 1.7 sextillion. 17 zeros. 1.7 or 17 to the power of life. 1.77, right, It's a huge number. So there's a professor at uh, the sci- of science at Westmont College who got his class together uh, to figure out what would be the odds of taking eight prophecies that predicted the Messiah and having them all fulfilled in one man. What would be the odds of that all happening? Just eight. And there's, some people say there's hundreds of Messianic prophecies. What would it be eight? He said the odds of putting like 10 tokens into a hat and pulling one out, what are the odds of getting the right one? One out of 10. In this case, to get all eight prophecies lined up with one man, you would take 1.7 sextillion coins and stack them across the face of Texas. And they said it would be ankle deep, two feet deep, two feet deep. Right? And you would mark one of those, stir them all up, and then blindfold a man, allow him to walk as far as he wants to walk, and then pick one coin. What are the odds of him getting the right coin? The same odds of, a man, of these eight prophecies. Let me just read in his words. Just the same that the prophets would have had of writing these eight prophecies, having them all come true in any one man from their day to present time, providing that they wrote them in their own wisdom. It was just mind-blowing that so many of these things... We're all fulfilled in Jesus. Now, what does this class, this study, tell you about who God is through His Messiah? Genesis 3.15 and on, we've been seeing prophecies that there is this individual coming to do all these things, and this is countless things. And they all coincide in one man, What does that tell you about God? Thousands and thousands and thousands of years all come together in one man.
3: It's contrived, not by chance. Mm -hmm.
0: Exactly. Exactly. (coughs) Is God a God of random chance? Does he just like push a button and see what happens? Oh, he's so specific. So instrumental. Does he desire for us to know? It seems so obvious that he does. Also, the things that Jesus say, the things that Jesus said that he would accomplish, the things that the um, apostles say that he accomplished, makes far more sense that all those things happen when you look at everything that was building up to who Jesus is. He was one man that God had anointed to redeem all of humanity those who decide to trust in God from the beginning of time until that moment he was one man that it's just it's just for me it's so obvious that he did everything that God said he would do you know just kind of give you guys a little bit of encourage uh, challenge more so as you get out of here There's two ways to analyze the Messiah of the Bible, in my opinion. One, you can go through and look at the specific prophecies or predictions of the Messiah. You can look at ways that there was a Christophany where Jesus maybe appeared, like um, the priest Melchizedek, thank you, or um, Joshua 5, where the commander of the Lord's army, you can look at those things, you can look at the prophecies and it's interesting. I feel like that limits so much of what you can learn about who the Messiah was.
1: How would you state that? Predictions of what?
0: Predictions of the Messiah. Of the Messiah. Yeah, of who was coming. You know, like the suffering servant and the Son of Man and Daniel. Those are really good things. Or the fact that he'll be writing a cult in Zechariah, right? These things are interesting. They're good. But in my opinion, if you really want to analyze who the Messiah of the Bible is, you've got to look at the God that the Messiah represented and the way that he showed his character through the entire Bible. This list shows us both who the Messiah was, but even more so, who the God that the Messiah represented is. Right? And Messiah is an anointed individual that represents the one who anointed him. Right? It says in Colossians 2.9 that Jesus, his, he, uh, in full... Yeah, I can't... Let me find what's in that turn. Colossians 2 9, for in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So all of God dwells fully in Jesus, in the Messiah. So if you want to know who the Messiah is, you just got to figure out who the God that He is representing is. And that's what the entire Bible, Old Testament and New, is there for us to do is to figure out who God is. Just dedicate our lives to going slowly through book after book after book. Talking to God, seeking wisdom from His Spirit, which is in each of us. Having companionship with other people that want to do the same thing through conversations. It's just like such a beautiful thing that we were created to do. Just to get to know our, our Savior and our Creator. You know? They're all one. awesome so good wonderful you know and honestly what we looked at here is just such a small little taste of who God is see it as hopefully it'll be a give you a desire to get into it and study it for yourself you got the spirit within you